Let me ask you to open up this morning to the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms, and uh, in particular we're going to be looking this morning at Psalm uh, 101, Psalm 101. As you turn there, let me ask you a, a question. Did you make a New Year's resolution? We're now 11 days uh, into 2015. Did you make a commitment of some kind that you are seeking to keep throughout this new year? Uh, The making of New Year's resolutions is quite popular. Uh, Almost half of all Americans say that they regularly, annually make New Year's resolutions. And this practice has a very long history. The ancient Babylonians would begin each new year by making promises to their gods. The Romans did the same thing. In fact, they made their annual New Year's promises to the god Janus, from which we get the month January. Those mighty Christians of the past, the Puritans, refused to indulge in the bad behavior that some people would get into during their New Year's celebrations. And yet the Puritans did believe that it was a good practice for Christians to look back over the past year, give thanks to God for His mercies, and then to make commitments to God concerning improving themselves for the year to come. Now, of course, there's a great deal of difference between the kinds of resolutions that people tend to make today and the kind of resolutions that the Puritans often made. Uh, Last year, according to a study by the University of Scranton, these were the top ten New Year's resolutions in the United States. So these were the top ten resolutions made by Americans last year. Number ten, to spend more time with family. Number nine, to fall in love. Not sure how you make that one happen. Number eight, to help others reach their dreams. Number seven, to quit smoking. Number six, to learn something exciting. Number five, to stay fit and healthy. Number four, to enjoy life to the fullest. Number three, to spend less and save more. Number two, to get better organized. And the number one resolution made last year, you've probably guessed it, to lose weight. Now, let's take those typical New Year's resolutions and set them aside, um, the resolutions made by the late Puritan Jonathan Edwards. As a young man of 19, Jonathan Edwards began a two-year process of coming up with 70 resolutions that he committed to review every week for the rest of his life. And I'm just going to read you some of the first of his 70 resolutions that he reviewed and read every week for the rest of his life. And he put these together when he was 19 and 20, which is astounding to me. He wrote at the top of his list of resolutions, "...being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help..." I do humbly entreat Him by His grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to His will for Christ's sake. And then he has a note at the top of his resolutions. Remember to read these resolutions once a week. Number one, resolved 
that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this whatever difficulties I meet with, how many soever and how great soever. Number two. Resolved to be continually endeavoring to find out some new contrivance and invention to promote the aforementioned things. Number three. Resolved, if ever I shall fall and grow dull, so as to neglect to keep any part of these resolutions, to repent of all I can remember when I come to myself again. Number four. Resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God, nor be, nor suffer it, if I can avoid it. Resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Number six. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Number seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Number eight, resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself, and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. Number nine, resolved to think much about the occasion of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Number ten, resolved when I feel pain to think about the pains of martyrdom and of hell. Resolved, 11, when I think of any theorem in divinity to be solved, immediately to do whatever I can to solve it if circumstances do not hinder. Resolved, if I take delight in it as a gratification of pride or vanity or any such account, immediately to throw it by. 13, resolved, to be endeavoring to find out fit objects of charity and liberality. Number 14, resolved never to do anything out of revenge. Number 15, resolved never to let the least motions of anger towards irrational beings. In other words, never to get angry at animals and things that aren't people. Number 16, resolved never to speak evil of anyone. And the last one, resolved 17, that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. There's some really, really good resolutions there um, for us to think about. Another thing we cannot help but notice is that while many, people who annu- are, while many people annually make these New Year's resolutions, the majority of these resolutions aren't kept. According to that same University of Scranton study, a quarter of New Year's resolutions are broken in the first week. A third of them are broken in the first month. And according to a study by the University of Bristol, in the end, 88% of New Year's resolutions are not kept. Now, why do you think this is? Well, I would suggest that while we are not lacking in resolutions, we often are lacking in resolution. 
Keeping a commitment requires backbone. Uh, Keeping a commitment requires resolve, fervor, diligence, perseverance, even a sense of shame if we consider going back on our commitment. And this is something our culture is weak in. Resolution. Conviction. We are a wishy-washy people, by and large. This is very dangerous when it comes to the Christian life. Because following Jesus is not for wishy-washy people. Without resolution, how are we to keep our commitment to trust and obey Christ when it is difficult? Without resolution, how are we to follow Jesus when the pressure gets hard and the temperature turns up? How can we be faithful representatives of God in this world if we make a vow and then can't keep it? God always keeps His word. What does it say when we who are His children cannot keep ours? Mount Hermon, the need for Christians to have resolution is only increasing. Let me ask you, can you feel the temperature rising around us in our culture? Can you sense how the pressure upon us to compromise our morals and to compromise our beliefs is intensifying? In the coming generations, if Christians are not resolved, we will not hold firm. Christians must be a people of resolution. And so with all of that in mind, I want us to take the rest of our time to look at an example of a man who had godly resolution. And his name was King David. This psalm was a resolution that King David made while he was still living on earth, reigning as king over Israel. More than that, this psalm is the very word of God. And it was written down for us as an example for us to learn from. So we're not only hearing from King David here, we're hearing from God himself. So would you look with me at Psalm 101? Psalm 101. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. O when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me, and I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house, and no one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off the evildoers from the city of the Lord." Well, I trust you see in this psalm the theme of of resolution. Uh, Again and again, ten times, we hear King David saying, I will, I will, I will. And then seven times more in the ESV, he declares, He shall, or He shall not, or what shall, or shall not be. He declares what he is resolved to allow in his kingdom, and what he is resolved to not allow in his kingdom. The theme of resolution is pervasive here. Spurgeon says, This psalm is David all over, straightforward, resolute, and devout. He says, There is no policy or trace of vacillation. 
The Lord has appointed David to be king, and he knows it. And therefore he purposes in all things to behave as a monarch whom the Lord himself has chosen. Spurgeon goes on to say that a good title for this psalm would be the Psalm of Pious Resolutions. And that's what it is. This psalm is simply one resolution after another being made by the King of Israel. And so what I want to do is separate this psalm into three parts, each part representing a different kind of resolution. And with biblical authority, I want to call us to share in these same resolutions. I want us at the very core of our beings to be committed to these three things, refusing to compromise on them, refusing to give sway. So what's the first kind of resolution we see here? It is a resolution to worship. A resolution to worship. We see this at verse 1. Do you see it? I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord, I will make music. Isn't it interesting that in a list of all of these resolutions about how David is going to rule his kingdom, this is the first resolution he makes. Above everything else, God, above everything else, I am going to praise you. David says, I'm going to sing of your love. I'm going to sing of your justice. And I'm going to make music to you. Now this makes sense, I think. What is more important than this. If we are not giving God His rightful place in our hearts, how can we really expect ourselves to honor Him with our lives? If we are not first and foremost looking to God, thanking God, praising God, do we think we're going to have a right relationship with, with other people? Put simply, if our vertical relationship is not right, we cannot expect our horizontal relationships to be right. Friends, the first step to living well in this world is to live in the joy of your salvation. The first step is to acknowledge God to think about His love, to think about His awesome character, to be overwhelmed by God. And only when we are living in all of Him, only when we are living lives of praise to Him, finding our joy in lauding Him, will we be able to face life as we ought. Men and women, boys and girls in this room, hear this. You were created to be a worshiper. That's who you were created to be first and most fundamentally. You are a worshiper. And until we're doing that well, your life will always be out of place and out of joint. You will be discombobulated like a machine that has lost its purpose and its function. You were created to be a worshiper. Why should you be resolved in 2015 to be a worshiper and lover and praiser of God. First and foremost, above everything else, God is worthy of your praise. God is due your praise. In fact, all you have to do is look with the eyes of faith at the steadfast love of God for you. All you have to do is is think about His mercy and how He holds you up every moment and your heart instinctively knows what to do. You praise. You love. You sing. 
How can you think about the hell that you deserve and the great God you've sinned against and then see the cross of the Lord Jesus and think about the forgiveness of every one of your sins and think about the heaven that is ahead for you? How can we think about those things and not have music in our hearts? Not be ready to praise, not be ready to rejoice, to boast in God. Worship isn't hard. Worship is a very easy thing. All you have to do is look. No one takes lessons on how to stand in awe when they go to the Grand Canyon. No one has to tell their heart to worship. No, all they do is they draw close to the edge and they look. And the awe, it just happens. And all the benefits that come our way when we are regularly, continually looking upon our great God every day beholding His awesome mercy, and our heart just responds in praise and adoration and worship. Mount Hermon, I want our church to be known for many things. I hope that people who come among us see our concern for right doctrine. I pray they notice how careful we are to worship God as He has prescribed. I hope they see our heartbeat and our emphasis on evangelism and reaching the nations for Christ. And certainly I pray that people will notice how we care for one another and how we love each other. But that must not be all. Please God, let that not be all. Rather, when people come among us as a church, they need to see that God is everything to us. May they see us as a people of praise, a people who love to worship, a people who love to exalt God and adore God. Do you love to lift up His holy name? Do you love to proclaim your thanksgiving to Him and your amazement at how wonderful He is? I wonder, are you resolved to be a continual worshiper of God? In your own life, is it a priority for you to make sure that not a day goes by in which you do not look at God's goodness, think about His person and His work, and praise Him? Are you committed to the worship of the church? God is shown to be great when His people joyfully come together to praise Him together. And when this is a priority in our lives... Such a priority that we would rather miss out on family reunions and sporting events and a day at the beach. No, we'd miss out on all of that to be with God's people and to praise God. This shouts out to the world that God is better than all the stuff this world has to offer. In 2015, what is your commitment to the worship of God, both privately, individually, and as a family, and for us as a church? Are you resolved when it comes to the worship of God? Or are you fickle? Is it easy for you to be sidetracked and swayed away from this? Past generations of Christians were resolved on this issue. Our generation seems to be half-hearted. I remember growing up, we used to sing a song called, I am resolved no longer to linger. Charmed by the world's delight. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. Is that you? Is that me? 
Are we resolved no longer to linger being charmed by the delights of this world? Is it true that higher things, nobler things, namely the things of God, is it true that those have gripped our hearts? That we prefer those things above everything else? I will hasten to Him, hasten so glad and free, Jesus greatest, highest, I will come to Thee. How we ought to be singing that in our hearts every Sunday morning, every Sunday night on our way to church, but also every day as we're living for the glory of God. Let us resolve to worship God. Second, we see in this psalm a resolution to walk in integrity. And we see this in verses 2 through 4. David begins by saying, I am resolved to worship God. But then he says, I am resolved to walk as a child of God. He will walk in moral purity. He will walk in holiness. Look at verses 2 through 4. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Note the particulars. David is going to ponder the way that is blameless. That is, he's going to seek to think about and learn about what is the right way of living? What is the the way of purity? And he knows his great need for God's help. He cries out for it. In the midst of the psalm, he cries out, Oh, when will you come to me? David is hungry for holiness. David is hungry for purity. He he desires it like a man in a hot desert longs for cool water. David knows that integrity begins in the heart. He says he's committed to first watching over his heart, guarding his heart, throwing out every evil thought, every evil desire the moment it seeks to arise. And this is where resolution to be holy begins. We must work to maintain a pure heart. David is thinking about his own private life, the life of him and his family, the the life he lives within his house and here in secret, away from the public eye. He says, I resolve to be pure. He will not allow himself to be one person before others and another person when he's alone or in his home. I wonder if that's you, dear friend. Are there any Dr. Jekylls and Mr. Hydes here? One person when you're here with us at church and maybe someone else when your thoughts are are allowed to run free without others watching. Who you are when you are in secret is who you really are. And what you do in secret does affect you and it affects the rest of your life, whether you can sense it or not. Let us not be deceived. What is done in the dark will be brought to the light. And so let us be resolved right now that we will be true Christians, walking in purity and holiness, beginning in our own private lives. You see what this means in verse 3. David says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. That word worthless refers to something that is wicked, something that is not worth looking at because it's rubbish, because it's immoral trash, it's filth. Are any of us here guilty of putting filth before our eyes? What have you been watching lately? 
websites have you been visiting? What books have you been reading? Friends, losing weight might be a good goal for some of us. I acknowledge that. Getting better organized, that's, that might be a worthy resolution too. But we're talking now about something far more important. We're talking about your soul. You put filth before your eyes and it can harden your heart and lead you into unbelief and ultimately to hell itself. Pornography can harden your heart, sear your conscience, lead you away from Jesus. Those immoral movies, ladies, trashy romance novels, they can turn you from a useful servant of Christ into a thorn that brings pain into the lives of others. These things have a way of turning your heart in on yourself so that you become less loving, less sacrificial, less generous, more selfish, more self-centered, ultimately a proven unbeliever. If you make a resolution to get better organized and you fail to keep it, that's sad. But if you fail to keep your resolution to kill sin before it kills you, the result is of eternal consequences. Do you understand how important your eyes are and why David would say, I'm not going to set anything filthy before my eyes? Jesus said in Luke 11.34, Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. In other words, Jesus says, through your eye, your whole self will either be in light or in darkness. And so walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. When Jesus said, follow me, He meant to follow Him in the way of light, in the way of not putting anything obscene before you, but setting your mind on things that are good. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Philippians 4.8 And don't miss the end of verse 4 right here in our psalm. Because David is not just resolved to fight certain sins. David is resolved to fight all sin. He is resolved to be pure in every way, to give no sin a foothold. He says, A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Now, Christians are to be a people of knowledge. Right? Christians are not to be a people of ignorance. But here's the one exception. Let us know nothing of evil. Don't even learn the language. Don't, don't learn the terminology. Let others go down those rabbit holes. You don't need to. Hear the exhortation of Paul. This is God caring for you. Paul says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Did you hear that? Should you be a thinker? Yes, absolutely. Christians ought to be thinkers. The eyes of faith require thinking, knowledge. You must know the promises of God and bring the promises of God to your mind. We have to think about God if we're to give Him the praise He is due. When it comes to truth, when it comes to love, when it comes to honoring God in our callings, we must be thinkers. But this is the exception. 
When it comes to evil, Paul says, be an itty-bitty baby. When it comes to evil, be like algebra to a baby. You don't even comprehend it. You don't understand it. What's math to a baby? Itty bitty, itty right? right? What's one plus one? Baby doesn't comprehend. It's a foreign language. That's how foreign evil should be to us. Yes, we should know the devil's schemes. And we should know to discern evil when we see it. But when it comes to committing sin, living in sin, the ins and outs of the paths of sin, let us know nothing at all. Mount Hermon, I'm not asking you to make a resolution. I'm asking you whether or not you have a resolution. Is your allegiance to God so strong and so sure that though a hurricane of temptation come your way, you will not sin? Will you run like Joseph out of Potiphar's house before giving in to temptation? Would you rather be struck through with a thousand spears rather than commit the least sin against the holy, holy, holy God who has been so good to you? Is your backbone made of jelly? Or is your backbone made of steel? The deeper your relationship with God, the richer your love for Him, the more you're living in the joy of your salvation, the stronger your backbone will be. Number three. I only mentioned this last resolution. In verses five through eight, we see David's resolution to exercise justice and righteousness in his calling. To exercise justice and righteousness in his calling. Now in his case, he was the king of Israel. And these verses reflect that authority. And the decisions that he had to make as king to uphold justice and righteousness. But his resolution is an example for us too. Because your calling and my calling, it's going to be different than David's. We're not kings here. But we too must be resolved to fulfill the callings God has given us as unto the Lord. We should work with all our hearts and with all our might, striving for excellence, seeking to honor the Lord in every calling He has given to us. And like David in this passage, this means treating others with fairness. It means that we treat those under our authority with fairness. It means that we uphold the rules of the home or the workplace or the community group. It means that we never show partiality or wrong favor one person to another. Indeed, we could sum up this third resolution this way. It is a resolution to do right in all of our callings. In our family relationships, we must be committed to doing right even when it hurts. Sometimes doing right by our spouse, doing right by our children, doing right by others in our families, it can hurt. It can mean self-sacrifice. Sometimes it, it means inner anguish. But with God as our God, we must be resolved to do right, no matter what the cost to us. 
We must give of ourselves to serve our families as God would have us serve them, trusting Him and not ourselves. We must do right in all our relationships. We must be quick to confess our sins when we have wronged others and seek to make restitution. We must be quick to forgive and not harbor bitterness. We must keep our word to others. Keep our promises. Don't make a commitment you can't keep. If you borrow, make sure you give back. If you take on a debt, make sure you pay it back and within the terms that were agreed upon. This is doing right in your callings. To those who are in authority above us, we must respect them and honor them and obey them as far as godliness requires. We're to give them our best and we're not to slander them or to demean them. Mount Hermon, we could go on and on, but it comes down to this. Are you committed to doing what is right in all of the callings God has placed on you? Are you committed to being a righteous person for the glory of God? Give your conscience to God. Surrender your conscience to the Word of God and learn to be led by your conscience. Learn to have your conscience pricked ready to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. When when you're about to go out of step, let the Holy Spirit speak through your conscience and say, whoa, that's not right. God would have you be righteous. This is what we need. We need resolution. We need conviction. Will you be a person of conviction, refusing to do wrong, but always to do right in every calling God has given you? Mount Hermon, as you can see, we need God's help to be these kinds of people. And our only hope is Christ. Jesus is our righteousness before God. And we don't trust in anything we do. We just testified to that with our statement of faith here. We just testified our righteousness is Christ. He alone is our way of salvation. And if you're not following Christ, that must be first priority above everything else. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, your first resolution must be to turn from your sins and turn to Jesus. Be baptized in His name. Start speaking to Him in prayer. Sit under His Word. Learn from Him. Follow Him. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, every other resolution you make, it doesn't matter in the end. The fact that we all need Jesus doesn't mean that we shouldn't take these resolutions seriously. It's the opposite. If you're a Christian, you must believe what God has told you in the Bible. And what has God told you in the Bible, dear Christian? You are no longer a slave to sin. By God's power, the bondage that sin held over you has been broken. You really can, by the Spirit of God within you, keep these resolutions. Sin is not too strong for you because God's grace at work within you is sufficient. In the book of Hebrews promises, there will always be a way of escape. Or is it Corinthians? I'll ask Merle later. Dear Christian, if you fail to keep these resolutions, it won't be because sin was too powerful for you. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. If you fail to keep these resolutions, it will be because you chose to give in. 
you refused to persevere. You held out just long enough to seem respectable in your own mind, and then you gave in because you wanted to give in. Sunday night, it's time for church. You have this commitment, I want to put the praise and worship of God above everything else. But you know, I went the last two Sunday nights. That's respectable. You know, I went a whole month without getting on that phone and gossiping. That's pretty respectable, right? This one time won't matter. Jesus died on the cross so that you would be free to live a life of worship, a life of integrity, and a life of righteousness. Don't dishonor His cross by now taking the freedom He gave you and throwing it down the drain. Don't put the shackles back on. Let us resolve to worship God. Let us resolve to walk in integrity. And let us resolve to do right in all of our callings. And may God be glorified in our lives as He gives us grace through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess before you that we are but dust. We do need your grace to keep these callings. We do need your spirit at work within us. And we need strong faith. Father, I ask that you would bless every man, woman, and child in this room with great joy in Jesus Christ. Father, help them to be absolutely amazed at your awesome character and your astounding grace. And Father, would you give us such joy in you that we would have firm backbones of steel able to say no to every temptation to do wrong. Father, we want, to, we want to be a holy people for Your glory. We want to be a holy people so we can better bless our families and those we love. We want to be a holy people so that we can shine brighter in this community which is in such need of the Gospel. So Father, would You humble us? Would You help us to look to You? Would You help us to find joy in You? and new resolution, and conviction, and commitment. Let us look more like the Puritans of old, and not so much like the wishy-washy culture we live in. Father, we ask your blessings on this Lord's Day. Help us this afternoon to think about these things, to benefit from them as we meditate on them. Bring us back tonight as we begin again to think about the doctrine of repentance. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.